Hey everybody, before we start the show, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Lumi Labs. What, what? If you're a regular listener of the show, then you already know that Lumi Labs are the kings of microdosing thanks to their delicious THC gummies that aren't built to knock you into next week, but to give you a relaxed and chill feeling over an extended period of time with each low-dose gummy. The product is aimed at helping you relax, and it works. They work so well at achieving that goal that I use them as a sleep aid. The best part of it is Lumi's THC gummies are available nationwide and aren't affected by your state's marijuana laws because they use a synthetic THC strain. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com, and if you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. Again, that's microdose.com, code KINGCAST. Very well done, Eric. And I'm here with the uh, Fangoria house ad. Uh, in 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your annual subscription. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest today is a longtime music video director who's worked with bands like the John Spencer Blues Explosion, TV on the Radio, Gnarls Barkley, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and Depeche Mode's Dave Kahan. But he's here today to promote his feature debut, a sinister new horror movie by the name of The Seeding, which is getting a limited theatrical release and hitting digital on demand on January 26th. We watched it, we enjoyed it, and therefore we had no choice but to welcome him onto the show to talk to us about it, along with uh, Stephen King's classic tale of fan entitlement run amok misery. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Barnaby Clay. Barnaby, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Enjoying a rainy day in Los Angeles, that rare and special treat. Indeed. It's uh, every time it rains in Los Angeles, people that I follow on Twitter in Los Angeles comment on it they're always very excited <laughs> is, is, know, are, do you get excited that. when it rains or is it just like the gimmick of it because you rarely see it i don't well look i'm english so for me it's just like it's, <laughs> it's a little bit you know it's just like oh yes rain right also it's just like i don't know there's that famous line in taxi driver where it's like you know he's waiting for a rain to come to wash the scum I feel LA like could maybe use that. Yeah, because the st- the streets just stay gross for months and months and months. Like you know, someone can be sick, and there it will be. And I will walk past it every day for like you know three months until eventually it rains, and you're like, oh god. <laughs> I've driven in LA. I've been there when they've had rainstorms, and I think what people freak out about is. 
the fact that most people it's a big driving city and uh it's a difficult to navigate driving city it's an aggressive driving city uh in the best of circumstances when it's uh, all sunshine and and blue skies Owned driving city, I would say as well. <laughs> and once, when you throw in a little uh, rain in the mix, because it doesn't happen often, people have no fucking. You'll have one person in the lane next to you driving ninety miles per hour down the four hundred five, and the person in front of you is driving twenty, and yeah. you don't know what you're going to get. So I think it's more about uh, people freaking out. Because one, oh my God, I see water actually coming from the sky. And then two, oh my God, somebody's going to kill me on the freeway. So so that that would be my guess as to why. Basically, <laughs> to how why te- like, like how Texans drive when like it's there's like snow flurries in the air. Yes, when, when there's a chance of ice, for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's Texas. legitimate concern. I think here it's just like, yeah, people are just so, you know, it's just like literally sunny the whole time so when it steps out of that everybody's just like oh my god what do we do (laughs) Um, well we we are as i mentioned in your intro we are talking to you today because you have uh directed your first feature film it's called the seating i uh really enjoyed this movie it's i'm i'm a big fan of horror movies that kind of take place in and around a single location this movie uh really worked on my my claustrophobia you know, he's your main character and we'll we'll explain what the movie's about in a second. But the he's not like confined, you know, he's not in a coffin or like a closet or a single room during this, but he is contained. And that shit, I don't know. I, there's something makes very unnerving <laughs> about that yeah. to me. I, I hate it. Like, I just yeah. as soon as that ladder disappeared up the side of the fucking wall, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, he's um, in it. Can you, uh, will you tell our listeners what, uh, what, what is the seating about? It's about like an amateur photographer who goes for a hike one day. He's from the city. He goes for a hike and, um, on his way back from taking his pictures, uh, he meets a boy who is, um, lost and he offers to help this boy. And the boy essentially leads him astray further and deeper into the desert and then runs off, leaving him alone. And then he's just like stumbling around the desert at night, trying to find somewhere to stay. And mm-hmm. it's getting colder, darker. And eventually he sees a light and he discovers that there at the bottom of a canyon is a, um, a house uh, with a, he sees a woman walking outside of it. Seems like a sort of maybe a safe bet, but like, you know, obviously any, shack in the middle of nowhere is always a bit scary but um uh he climbs down a ladder into this um canyon and he stays the night with this lady and then wakes up the next morning and the ladder has gone and he finds himself trapped essentially in what it is is like a giant kind of sand pit um yeah like a huge crater and he soon realizes that that he's there for another reason and that there are uh, the boy that he he who, who he lost in the desert was actually like a part of a group of boys, like feral children who kind of live above to essentially like torture and mess with these adults down below. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's somewhat the story. It gets a little bit more involved and, uh, <laughs> honestly, and, um, and goes to a place which hopefully has a bit more meaning, but uh, yeah, sure. it's a lot of confinement really. The whole thing is, mm. is confinement. Um, so yeah. I'd like to point out that the, you know, without going crazy in the spoilers, the movie 
opens with a toddler eating a human finger. So you're like, okay, uh, I think this is something that uh, that's going to deserve my attention for the next 90 minutes. Or right. So, 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 uh, so good job there. Hell of a Thank cold you. Weather. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the kind of signpost. It's like, I like films which do that. There's like, you know, the instructions are like right there on the front of the tin. You know, it's, <laughs> well, you, you kind of need, you're like, all right, okay. I'm either in this or I'm out of this. You know, right. but if you're in it, you're in it, man. This is well, this is the this is the world we're heading into. <laughs> and you kind of need that hook when you're gonna ask an audience to to sit for a slow burn, and that's what the movie yeah. is like. If you're you need to be like, don't worry, shit's gonna get really fucked up really quick. You know, just uh, you yeah, know, but you just give that. us a second, let us build to it. And so, exactly. yeah, you do need that little opening. Yeah, like, what the hell is this now? It was I, kind of a. It was kind of a. Um, actually something which which i wrote in and shot after the film was done like well i mean mm. basically maybe about like halfway through the edit uh i had a bunch of stuff at the beginning kind of a, a bit more of a sort of preamble of him like driving leaving the city getting a bit more of an idea of who this person was and all this kind of thing and then i just realized that i just felt I didn't want any of that. I just, I really enjoy stories and films which kind of just drop you right in with the character and and you kind of learn about them as they deal with their circumstances. Um, so I decided that, but I did want something up front. I needed something. And I was like, wow, what can I? And then I came up with this idea of, of this child and it just, it, obviously it ties in thematically with the film, but also, um, yeah, it's just a really bold image that I'd never seen before. So I was just like, this 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 sounds fun. If I saw a movie with that at the front, I would just be like, okay, all right, this is this is good. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm curious about the uh canyon where you filmed this. Like uh I presume you you, you actually built the the little house that's down there. We did. Yeah. We we found after like basically scouting like large portions of the world. I mean, really like all over the place, like from Romania to to the Canary Islands, to Mexico, Canada. Like oh, wow. We, we finally, um, I mean, we weren't physically scouting, but we were like reaching out to scouts all over the place and they were sending us pictures. And um, somebody sent a picture of this place in southern Utah, um, in Kanab in southern Utah. And it's just a bend in a canyon, um, but it's a really like a big bend, which gave me uh, what I needed to shoot, which was basically like a 20 like a 220 degree kind of circle, which I could use as, as a backdrop. And basically, so really what we, you know, what you're seeing there in the film is, is like, yeah, it's the bend in a Canyon. And when, and we did a little bit of post in the end and kind of sealed it up. Um, so you could get in and out there. Uh, we, but, and it was, was, it was tough getting in and out of there, I will say. And, um, but yeah, we built the house in there and, you know, for, a, for a story like this, which like you say, is so much about, um, claustrophobia and confinement. Like I really, A, wanted to shoot it on location. It was necessity. And then B, just like it had to, um, yeah, once you're there on location, I just had this feeling that like, that, you know, if we could just make make it as authentic as possible in that situation for us, as in like me and my cast and my crew, then you know, immediately we get a sense of what that feels like. And I think, yeah, by the end, we were all just like, 
are suffering from some level of claustrophobia, you know, just being down in this, like, it was also, it was, it was weird because it was the desert, which is very hot, but there was groundwater coming up underneath so that the ground was kind of muddy. So it was just a very strange place and it was mm. really hard to work in and um, also extremely beautiful as well. But, but that was obviously negated by the endless pain of like trying to make a low budget movie. <laughs> right. That was, I mean, you've pretty much answered most of the questions I had about the production of this because I was, I was very curious if this was actually an enclosed location or not. Yeah. You're saying it's a bend. So I imagine you had a route in and out of it, but was that, how steep is that? Like what, how, how large of a pain in the ass was it to haul your gear yeah. down into oh this thing gosh. every day? I mean, we had to like, you know, the, the, the set for the most part was kind of, like the four walls of the set and roof were built in Salt Lake City, and then they drove it down on a flatbed, and they had to drive this thing in there on top of uh, our, you know, all of our equipment. And uh, I think about a week before we started shooting, we shot in um, in October, and a week before, I think it was either like late September or early October there was a, a snowfall, which is like very unusual at that time of year. It came very early and it looked <laughs> stunning. I was just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. We're going to get the cameras out. Of course we didn't have any cameras at that point, but, um, <laughs> uh, but it was, you know, that snow came and it melted and basically with it just melted away the road going in there. Um, so we essentially had to rebuild the road and spent, we spent the entire shoot basically, building this road like it would like you know we'd build it and then parts of it would just wash away and then and then we'd have to rebuild another part oh, it was just it was kind of just a, a an unending nightmare really it was like a cycle <laughs> of, of hell for me um uh you know i used to drive it was like a uh, maybe like 10 minutes from the local town on a main road and then it was mm -hmm. about 15 minutes down this very like windy like canyony road Again, insanely beautiful. I would sit there in this very, like, weird state of like looking out the window as I sort of drove to set, and I would see deer running around, birds flying, and and just be like, "Wow, this is so gorgeous," you know. And at the same time, I'd suddenly be hit with like, "Oh my god, what hell is going to fall upon me today?" You know, um, <laughs> it's it kind of my drive of hell, but. Uh, um, I think it was Stanley Kubrick or something who said like the worst part of filmmaking is the drive, you know, the drive. <laughs> um, um, but uh, yeah, so it was, it was not without its challenges. It was very challenging, you know, and every time also just getting the boys up on the ridge, you had to like drive them a completely different route. And then they had to be, like harnessed in up there. They had to be, um, there was yeah. a team up there. Um, it was very hard to communicate, even though it's like 60 foot from the, the ground to, to the ridge, it was very hard to communicate with them up there. So it was just, it was just you know, and says, there's no cell phones just didn't work there. We're in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, right. anything that broke down, just like we had a, we had a crane, we had brought a crane in like a, like a cherry picker. And, mm -hmm. um, it, it broke when I was on it, actually, which was a slightly disconcerting. But um, but we we then had to take it out, and then it just like 
it just packed in on the way out. So for about four days, the only road in and out was blocked by this like giant cherry picker. And we just had to like figure out a way of like transporting people around this thing. It was just, you know, I think about, I think the night before the shoot, I, um, before the first day of shooting, I was lying in bed in my motel room. I was like, I wanted to watch something just to inspire myself. And, um, I decided to watch this like rarely seen German documentary, like, like a, like a half hour featurette on Werner Herzog. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Caraldo, yeah. And yeah. And I was just yeah. like, and then like two days later, I was like, maybe that was the wrong thing to watch. I think that really set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Watching one of them, you know, something on one of the most difficult location shoots of a, that's ever yeah, happened exactly. on any movie. Yeah. 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 Well, I was going to joke that it was Fitzcarraldo you were watching, and then you worked your way over to it. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe the next time uh, you write a movie, it takes place in a public park or a city, oh, yeah. or you know, on a nice little soundstage, something like yeah. that. <laughs> I am, I am right there. I'm already, it's already happening. Seriously, <laughs> pull, pull a Judd Apatow. It takes place in a Hawaiian resort. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yep. yeah. Give yourself a treat on the next one. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I I recommend this movie to to all of our listeners. It's um, it's a lot of fun. It's hard to talk about without giving anything away. But um, if you if you like single location horror, which you know we're we're going to be talking about here in a moment, um. This is a this is a really good example of this. And you you make a fucking meal out of the concept that you that you laid out for yourself. And mm. I'm not surprised to learn this was a massive pain in the ass to shoot this thing. <laughs> uh, but it paid off. I mean, it's uh, very yeah. visually striking. It's just the production value that you're getting out of that location makes yeah. it feel a cut above most of the, you know, independent horror stuff that that crosses my desk anyway so i i thought you did a fucking fantastic job thank you thank you yeah i think i think there was a point where um you know like like most filmmakers go through this but when you see the first uh assembly um mm-hmm. in the edit and you're just like oh my god i've just made the worst film ever you know disaster <laughs> and like but you know the one thing which kind of got me through that was just this idea of just just the uh i just felt like the shoot was just so intense and visceral and like I was like something of that has to like end up on the film. You know, it can't, sure. you can't go through that and just come out with nothing. You just can't, there's gotta be something in there of some level of intensity, you know? So, um, so uh, <laughs> that was, that was what kind of got me through the dark days there. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, Again, it's it's great. Whatever I didn't have to shoot it. For all I know, this was the worst experience of your life, and you, and you hated every minute of it. But <laughs> worth it in the end, just as an outsider, you know, looking in. You know, yeah, it's uh, great. Uh, a gamble that really paid off. Um, before we before we get to uh, your Stephen King origin story, which I'll ask mm-hmm. you about in a second. There's there's something I want to bring up. You are married to Karen O of the the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. I don't have a question here. I just want to tell you, and you probably are already aware of this, given that you're married to her, but that is 
one of the coolest women on the face of the fucking planet. Uh, <laughs> well done. Uh, if she is even remotely interested in horror, uh, I, I'd love to fucking have her on the show. I'm a huge oh, yeah. fan of the yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, she 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 loves horror actually, and um and uh, yeah, you're not the first to tell me that I'm married to the coolest woman on the planet. <laughs> well done, really sir. An awesome thing to be told, and uh, and I can confirm that she is the coolest. So um, <laughs> good to hear. Good to hear. Uh, and she's also, you know, uh, obviously a great person, and I love her. And but at the same time, she's also like a really fantastic collaborator you know like whenever we've done work together even if i'm doing something like this with this film she's always been so supportive and and you know she's the person who like you know once i've written the script or i've got the the edit done she's the person it goes to i mean much the same with king actually and i know that like you know he's it's that was that's the situation with him but it's like the wives man yeah Yes, yeah. they 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 know basically. <laughs> <laughs> they do indeed. They do indeed. Um, all right. Well, <clears throat> speaking of Stephen King, uh, I, I suppose we should talk about him a little bit. That is what the <laughs> show is about. What is your Stephen King origin story, Barnaby? When did you well, first become aware of this guy? Well, I mean, I grew up, you know, in I think like peak King. You know, I grew up. Uh, I was born in the seventies. I started hearing about his stuff, like really from the late seventies into the, into the eighties when I was really more aware of it, it was just like, you know, ubiquitous everywhere. Um, he was, yeah. and just books on every stand, uh, movies coming out like every week, almost. It was just like, it was just everywhere. And, you know, a young man like myself who had a, uh, but of imagination, I think um, it was immediately appealing. Uh, so, but the thing I think was my real kind of moment of connection was actually, I have a brother who's autistic. He's eight years older than me and he's autistic. And um, he, uh, he got like really obsessed by Christine, the movie, mm. actually. Um, and he was just like talking about like Cunningham the whole time. And he was just like, and we'd watch it together. And I, I think it was just like, maybe, you know, he got bullied a bit at school and like, he just liked this idea of this, <laughs> of this. The narrative taking revenge. Yeah, totally. It just like really spoke to him. And, and, um, and also the fact that it was like this beautiful, mysterious car, that was um that was doing it you know um, right for him. and uh it, it was just like a, an amazing and also lawrence my brother it's called lawrence he, he was you know he he loved all things american he loved the um uh the soundtrack and just uh i i, I don't think at that point i was i think i was quite aware of john carpenter but like mm. or maybe i was i was getting aware let's put it that way um, right yeah. I was opening my mind to uh, the marvels of, of Carpenter, but but uh, um, but really, it, that was the first thing that because we just watched it over and over again. I mean, interestingly enough, I haven't seen it for maybe like twenty years or something, and I would really love to see it again, um, uh, just to see how it is 
but uh that was really the one that was the one which just like kind of you know via that film actually was uh-huh. just opening up um and then of course like the books started coming i started reading you know that opened me up to his books and then and then and then all the other movies you know which were i mean you know some of my favorite movies at that time um carrie and and uh salem's lot i loved as well and um mm. all the great ones so um right. now yes <clears throat> to is all of this all- happening in the uk did you grow up there uh it is happening in the uk yes yes I that's was interesting yeah well, yeah because we've had we've had people you know from the uk on the show before obviously and it seems kind of hit or miss to me like how aware they were of of king you know it's it seems kind of a mixed bag in terms of people who were fully aware of stephen king and then people were like yeah i was dimly aware but we also had these guys these you know these other horror authors that you know were were prevalent at the time so it's it's and and also christine is a kind of a rare answer here usually we hear it was the shining or Carrie, mm. or the It mini series, you know. So this is a, a doubly interesting pick for this particular <laughs> question. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, there were like people like James Herbert. You'd see his stuff mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. Like, really, still, I think people were all, the people I knew was seemed very aware of Stephen King, and you know, you just, you just couldn't. Like I said, at that point, you just really couldn't avoid him. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> right. It was just everything you mentioned, The Shining, and also like Stand by Me, and just like there was just like all this. This was a point, this period where like up to like Misery, and then continuing of of these films, which just kept on coming out. And then right. at the same time, you go to every like bookstore or newsagent, and you'd see his books. You know, um, I should I should actually add. I would like to add actually that I think. Just another thing which was really very dear to me was once I kind of got in there was Creep Show actually. Mm, um, yes, uh, because I don't know. I was like a fan of again. This this is probably a bit weird coming from England, but I was like a fan of EC Comics, you know, and, and those mm-hmm. the, and um, those kind of tales from the crypt and all all those kind of things and eerie and like and when that came also at the time I was getting into. I started getting into prosthetics and stuff like that and, and, and uh, special effects makeup and you know, the, 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 the God at that point was Tom Savini and, uh, right. and oh, just yeah. this, this culmination of like Tom Savini, Stephen King and George is just like, you know, um, <laughs> no, you can't beat that no no it's like incredible you know so it was just uh and and i i remember going and seeking out the uh the actual the book the graphic novel um i don't know where i got it from because it was kind of it was pretty hard to get i seem to remember and i was so excited that i got it you know um uh i still have it actually but those and those stories just like spoke. I just loved those stories. I, th- I still think they were they're just amazing. And recently showed them to my wife. Actually, she'd never seen it, so we we, we had an, an evening of creep show, which was which was fun. And you had some cake. We had some cake. Yeah. Exactly. No, actually, <laughs> you know what? She uh, like not long after that, it was Father's Day, and she bought <laughs> me a little figure, uh, a Father's Day figure um which 
is funny because it's still in the packet like a proper nerd and it sits it's like <laughs> in, my, in my kitchen and my son who's eight is just like he's just like what are you doing why don't you take that out of the box you're, in, you're insane <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, let kids don't have that collector mindset yet you just no. have to you'll have to teach that to them over time no. i know i know for looking not for playing but yes yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean that was just like romero stephen king and and uh and Thomas Savini it was just like whoa amazing um and I loved all those stories and totally and just seeing like Stephen King for the first time and just being like this is the guy this <laughs> lunatic <laughs> like he just, looks so unassuming you know he yeah. does not look like the guy that's generating this amount of of horror <laughs> into the world for sure <laughs> but they really he looks like did. a dentist yeah, you know? yeah yeah neither did Romero for that matter like, yeah. like he became especially in that era because like he kind of became um, I don't know, a bit of an icon in his older career with the big glasses and the yeah. vest and the silver ponytail and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But like back in this day, it's like he had like a bowl cut, you know, he was clean shaven. <laughs> he was, you know, right. maybe he's wearing contacts or something. I don't know. But it's like he had no glasses. He just looked like a guy that was could sell you a used car or something. There's, you know? there's a great um, like panel discussion I saw on the Criterion channel the other day and it was it's some like 80s interview with John Carpenter uh John Landis and David mm -hmm. Cronenberg and they're all just like sat in a row and they look like the most normal dudes you could possibly <laughs> imagine and they're all very smart and very articulate and um and yeah it's some it's kind of incredible because like literally John Landis has just like finished American Werewolf. Um, <laughs> David Cronenberg's about to put out Videodrome, and John Carpenter's about to put out The Thing. It's just like, right. holy shit! These guys are just like, what a what a collection of movies, man. That's a fucking time capsule. <laughs> but right I, I recommend watching it actually because it's just, it's really entertaining. And they're yeah. all just average looking dudes. Yeah, I mean yeah. Toby Hooper, Wes Craven, like yeah. Don Coscarelli, like all these guys are just like, oh, just look like <laughs> like the, the the nice uncle or the the nice the nice grandpa later on in their careers, I, I guess. Know. But uh although uh, there's that picture of, of Stephen King, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, that when he's like young and he just looks like a complete maniac when he's like Oh, well, is is that yeah. is that when he's like got his oh, giant yeah. beard and yeah, yeah, he's doing this grin. Yeah, yeah. Be be before the uh, the books paid for some dental work and yes, yes, yeah, and he cleaned himself up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, I mean they're out there. And then you have Dario Argento, who looks like a you know, oh, yeah. like exactly like the guy that would make uh, those jellos. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, so every once in a while they, they start looking like yeah, uh, and then whatever the hell Dean Koontz looks like right now. Not to once again drag Dean Koontz, oh, but if Lord. you've seen a picture of him lately, he's got a he's got a cousin it living on his head. And oh, uh, yeah. it's very off-putting. Okay. Yeah, it's it's alarming to see. Oh, it's, oh, wow. yeah, you oh, will, if you saw it in public, yeah. it would be like a jump scare. For yeah. Sure. yeah. <laughs> so the uh, the title you brought us today is Misery. Uh, hmm. This is a this is a great title. This is like there are there are titles that we cover on this show that we have we have done to death and are kind of tired of talking about. Hmm. I don't think Misery is one of them. Like Misery is just it's surprising. Yeah, well, there's there's just a lot to dig into on Misery, yeah. and it mm -hmm. kind of feels like every time Misery comes up on this show, 
there's some sort of bullshit happening on social media or, <laughs> yeah. you know, like something in the news cycle where some some level of fan entitlement has taken over and it like it makes the conversation fresh every goddamn time. Yeah, like, sure. You know, uh, right now, there's, you know, uh, I think people are are getting used to the new season of of True Detective and mm. uh, it's. It's it's not exactly what it's been in the past, and it yeah. seems like some people are wrestling with that to a degree that I would consider uh, nitpicking, yeah. and you know, just kind of being dicks about it. And <laughs> and it, it, it all has to do with how they feel about the first season of that show. Oh uh, yeah, so once yeah. again, we're we're back in territory where I'm like, yeah, the fans are fucking lunatics once again. Yeah, yeah. well, um, everybody has an opinion these days, you know. They do. And unfortunately, everyone has a platform these days. Yeah, exactly. Know? Yeah. So yeah. you know, there's, there's, there's good and and, and bad to be had with that. Um, I don't think we need to go through the go through the motions of explaining the plot of misery at this point. Do you, Eric? Oh, well, I mean, I can guarantee you that this is going to be the episode that people who've never watched the movie or read the book <laughs> listen to. And uh, no, no, of course we don't need to. To, to talk about it, I'm sure we'll we'll hit some of the uh, uh, the highlights as we're going through the the discussion. But uh, but yeah, I, we as Scott said that there's you know we were kind of drawn to this title with you because of the single location thing uh, in in the seating. Um, but there's you know there's there's also just kind of this element of a, a man trapped. Yeah, uh, the longer he's trapped, the more an obsession starts revealing itself and and then it's like mm-hmm. why is this obsession here is, is at the the center of your movie but uh you know it's it's known pretty upfront that you know that this is just famous author you know being trapped by a crazy fan is is this something that you that you came to through the movie like uh, a lot of the other uh, uh Stephen King suffered but by this point had you were you reading the books before the movies were were made I did not read I've never read Misery actually Oh interesting yeah, I have not. Um, uh, and interestingly enough, I remember when Misery came out and um, I was like, when I first saw it, I was not like immediately like hooked on it. Um, Interesting. I don't really know why. I think it's just like, I don't How know. How old were you? It's a good question. Um when did it come out? It was like came out in the it's like, like 90, 90, I think. 90s. Um, yeah, November 1990. 1990. So, so yeah, I was, um, I was 17. Yeah, I think I was just kind of like, I don't know. I think two things. One was like, it was very slick. It's a very slick, well made film. And mm-hmm. it's very much like, you know, Rob Reiner, who I love, who directed the film, who obviously, it was an incredible career um, and just like just a, a master of like hopping from all these different genres, you know, around. Like, I don't know. I was, I think I was at that point, I was really, really into horror. And I think I felt a little bit kind of betrayed that this non horror director, you know, like mm. very Hollywood as well, even though he'd like directed this is Spinal Tap, which is like obviously one of my favorite films ever. It's, it's fantastic, you know. So, but I just, I, I just was weirdly suspicious of that, um, and I think it was also one of those movies that that it, it, there was so much hype around it, um, and it was kind of 
it, it just felt to me like, um, you know, I was at that stage, that age when you just like, oh, it's like super commercial and Hollywood and I don't want to have anything to do with it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I think, I think that was really the, the, the initial reaction to it. It was just a bit more like that. It was just me being a bit of an idiot. But um, uh, um, He'd also done Stand By Me at that point. He had done Stand By Me. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Which is like, which I actually <laughs> loved as well. But um, yeah, it's weird. I don't know. Don't, don't ask me why I didn't like it. But uh, um, I just, I think it was just, yeah, it was something in the kind of, just that the the Hollywoodization of, of it. Sure. It, was, uh, it just seemed like too much. And, you know, and uh, I, you I you might- know, obviously <laughs> since watched it a few times and, and love it now. And, and Okay. I was going to say, I'd hope you turned around on it or else this is going to be a very <laughs> awkward uh, rest of the show. <laughs> no, no, no. Fuck misery and, and fuck <laughs> Rob Reiner. Let me, let me pull out the soapbox. <laughs> Terrible, it's terrible. Stealing Still. jobs from horror directors. Intriguingly, <laughs> though, you are kind of, uh, of onto something because your instinct isn't entirely off the mark. Because um, having having not read the book, you wouldn't know this, but the the book is way gnarlier than yeah. the movie. You know, uh, yeah. she cuts his fucking thumb off with like a, yeah. like an electric knife, and uh, you know, there's things with her, you know, feeding a body to pigs and, you know, she doesn't break his ankle. She cuts his foot off. You know, it is it is sort of a softened version of, of the original novel. But I don't know. We, we've talked about this before about would the movie be better if if you leaned into that, if it was gory or more violent. And I'm not I'm not convinced that it would be. I don't you know. Think so. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think the 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 replacing of like cutting the foot off with what actually happens in the film um, is just like, I mean, holy shit! That that's just like an all time great scene, you know that that, yeah. that that is now like in the kind of lexicon of like like horrific moments in films, you know that is like really in the peak. It's like top ten. So like, you know, could could cutting somebody's foot off and I mean it would be nasty you know but it's funny because I watched it again recently just um in preparation for this and I think that like one of the um I mean obviously apart from the fact is a man and a woman kind of like together in this one space one of the other things that really like ties my film and and misery together is really just like just the kind of what the character is put through the the main character Mm. You know what? Right. What James Kahn goes through. What um, Paul Sheldon, right? It's, it's his uh, his name, his character name, um, and it's just like it's just one thing after another, and it's just so uh, it's so intense, and you just feel it, and you're just again, it's just and seeing this this. I mean, the, where where it veers from my film is that in my film, you you. You you don't really know why he's there in misery. You know pretty soon why mm-hmm. he's there, and it's right. just really they're just revealing more and more about her. You know about her character, like who is this person? I mean, but it's really like I don't know. Um, it's pretty early on in it when she kind of just like goes a bit Looney Tunes um, about. I think it's about the swearing or something. You know, yeah. she's like, going to cut down the swearing in this, and then she goes off on one of her. 
<laughs> one of her like amazing <laughs> rants and you're like oh shit she's nuts man and uh um <laughs> but uh yeah i i think that i think that the the decisions they made i mean obviously like i said i haven't read the book but from from what i've read differences between the book and the film i think they made some really smart decisions and it was yeah. um uh what was it um William Golding, I think the uh, the writer Goldman, yeah, Goldman, yeah. yeah, that's right, screenwriter who who is you know obviously a legendary screenwriter in his own right. So um, to have him and obviously Stephen King had this already had this relationship with with um, with Reiner from from uh, Stand by Me, right? Trust there, but still, it must have been a little bit like you know for him just like. Yeah, because Stand By Me is not, you know, is his more like family friendly movie. I mean, it's got some sure. like, slightly shocking moments in it. And, right. But ultimately, it must have been a leap of faith for him to um, say, yeah, just go with it and, and, and you do it. You, you are the man for this, you know. Right. Um, so, uh, but it's interesting. Like I was I was thinking about when you were saying this a moment ago about how, you know, the the hobbling scene with the mm. with the sledgehammer is like one of the more iconic you know modern horror sequences and yeah you're absolutely right on that and it's it's just endlessly wild to me that the guy that orchestrated that and committed it to film is the same dude that did spinal tap and when harry met <laughs> sally like <laughs> i i guess this probably comes down to the idea that comedy and horror are flip sides to the same coin yeah. That, you know, a punchline is basically, a, you know, a, a, a jump scare or, you know, that it's the same kind of beat. It's the same I'm, sort of tension. I'm... Yes. Yes. That, that you're that you're working towards. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised by it. Ultimately, a lot of comedy people end up getting into horror and a lot of them turn out to be really adept at it. Mm. And and I guess in that sense, it's not surprising, but still it's like. You know, it's just wild to consider that Rob Reiner had that in him. Who knew? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, I think, you know, like every great movie, it's the sum of its parts, you know. It's just like him at the helm and then obviously this great story to start with, then the screenplay, which we talked about, and then these two just incredible performances, which, again, I mean, Going back to my film, I knew that like with this, with the film that I'd written, I knew that if I didn't have the correct people leading this film, it just falls. It's just going to fall flat immediately. It's just not going to work, you know? Right. And, and with Misery, it's just like, yeah, I mean, seriously, it's just like, it is just so dependent on that. And they are so good, like both of them. I mean, right. she obviously, you know, gets all these accolades because she's just playing this like insane loopy very fun in a way kind of character. Um, but he's just brilliant as well. Just like, I mean, it, how hard is that to, to just lie in a bed for, you know, days on end and just react essentially is what he's doing. He's just like yeah. different, different versions of, of disbelief <laughs> on his right. face. Like, right. Yeah. He's just so got to act. Like you said, he, he's, his acting is, is reacting. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, the, and, and it just also for, for any listeners who, you know, maybe aren't as familiar with James Caan's filmography, you know, or, or just know him as the dad from Elf or something like this wasn't what he was known for, you know, being this passive role. He was a tough guy. 
yeah. right? You know, physical. he was Sonny Cor- Corleone, you know, like he was known for being yeah. very, like you said, physical and, and yeah. Yeah. He's a very physical actor. And, yeah. um, and also, yeah, the idea of him playing a, uh, playing a, you know, a writer as well. Like, you mm, know, sure. Kind of like, it's not kind of who you imagine is that. And then at the beginning of it, I still have a bit of a problem at the beginning of the movie where he's just like driving along in his Mustang and he's like playing kind of a, I don't know, some slightly hammy blues, um, driving through the snowstorm. Like, why are you driving through the snowstorm in, in your old vintage Mustang? I know this because I have like a vintage car and I would never drive it in a snowstorm. <laughs> but, well, he's uh, too cocky. That's the problem. That's how you, I know, you know, you're yeah. not going to get miseried. Right? Yeah. Well, he's also luckily. just finished his book. So I guess he's like celebrating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, he is a creature of habit as, as established. It's like, you know, he yeah. has his, his rituals and, and I, maybe it just would have broken his ritual to have stayed an extra night to wait out yeah. the storm, you know? Totally. And, uh, yeah. 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 No, no, I, while we're talking about James Conn, um, uh, Barnaby, are you aware of the other actors who were offered this role that turned it down? Um, tell me. <laughs> okay, cool. This is kind of a kind of a tradition when we talk misery. <laughs> I, I love this. I we I do this every time we talk about misery because yeah. inevitably it blows the minds of whoever we're talking yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the list of people who were offered this role and turned it down. William Hurt twice kevin klein michael douglas harrison ford dustin hoffman robert de niro al pacino richard dreyfus gene hackman and robert redford oh wow they went through all all those motherfuckers all incredible so yeah i can all i can see them all kind of working in their own particular way i mean uh they all would change the identity of the movie well, a little bit, don't they? Yeah, course. it's really yeah. interesting to think about, yeah. like, like Pacino. Richard Dreyfus in that bed. Yeah, or yeah. well, Dustin yeah. Hoffman. Fantastic choices, but ultimately, yeah, it, uh, the film becomes, uh, and and then then what happens is that the book. Then you know, I always have this thing when you know, I'm sure you do as well. Everybody does, but when they, you know, either if they if you read a book after seeing the film. That's it. You've got those characters in your mind. Even actually, right. no, quite often I will read a book which I haven't seen the film, but I know there's a film being made. And I kind of like, I don't know, maybe I'm a few chapters in, I'm suddenly hankering to get a, a visual, a visualization on this person. Mm-hmm. And I will look up who played them in the movie and I'll just be like, ah. Oh, that's what he looks like. <laughs> right. of, the, uh, of the current crop of actors, you know, working today, if you were tasked with remaking Misery, um, <laughs> who would you who would you want in the lead? Oh my god! Okay, um, you can give me a few if you want. You don't want to narrow it down to one. Who would I want to see lying in a bed? For uh, <laughs> Chris Pratt, but only doing his Mario voice. <laughs> uh, maybe. I mean, you know, I, I like watching Michael Fassbender. I think he's like in the yeah. Oh yeah, he's a fucking um, good pick. I think he'd uh, he'd be pretty pretty solid. Um, and he's an actor who's like fascinating, even when he's going really small. Like yeah, like no, in the like, killer, he's, he's yeah, you know, Fincher's new movie. Like he's so restrained and just cool and fucking yeah. you know not like in the cool like social sense but like yeah the, 
totally. you know, temperamental sense. Uh, yeah, he'd be he'd be fascinating. And then it'll be interesting also doing it with somebody who's like a little bit less kind of uh, macho or whatever. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know, like Paul Dano or somebody like that, you know, who's just somebody really interesting who just... That's you know, interesting. How's he going to, yeah. you know, deal with... Not that he's like... You know, I don't know. Just like that would be interesting to me as well. Um, and yeah, also, I was trying you've to... got to cast it. You know, if I were if I were like overseeing a new version of Misery, you know, it's not just who plays Paul or who plays Annie, but like you also have to... You would it's have to company. ensure that the chemistry is is there between 100%. the two. I think Annie's the more important role, frankly. 100%. I mean, I don't know. I mean, have you seen have you seen Poor Things? Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. No, I just saw. I just saw it. It's, um, it's fucking rad. Yeah, because I mean, she's amazing, but also, um, oh god, why am I suddenly blanking his name? But Mark, uh, what's he Mark Ruffalo. Ruffalo. Yeah, Ruffalo. Oh my god. Oh, yeah, he'd be yeah. good for it too amazing in it he's so funny and uh it's just like this whole other side to him which is just brilliant and i think he's just like an endlessly watchable character he would be you know he would be he would nail that um really well and it'd be kind of interesting to go against the grain with her a little bit you know because she just like the kathy bates thing because i think she so much made it her own yeah, part. it's a large like, shadow. Uh-huh. You kind of have to go away from her um, uh, somewhere different. When they did this, you know, as a stage play, Bruce Willis was playing the Paul Sheldon role, and they had uh, Laurie yeah, Metcalf right, yeah. playing yeah. Uh, Annie Wilkes, which is yeah. a, a really interesting choice because, you know, uh, like um, Kathy Bates is a you know she's not a she's not a rail thin actress. You know she's she's sturdy. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And and she reads that way on screen. She's physically intimidating. You could yeah. you could imagine her being physically intimidated if you were or intimidating if you were say strapped to a bed. Yeah. Um, Lori Metcalf is very wiry. Yeah. You yeah, know, sure. and it's it's interesting to imagine a version of this that doesn't really play up Annie Wilkes's heft, but yeah. but like instead leads into this sort of like nervous hysteria you right. know of the character and you know how how quick she might be rather than yeah. like like a blunt force instrument. exactly yeah or just like just relying just on the the on the psychology of just how kind of demented she is because like ultimately that's really the most frightening thing. It's not her physicality. It's just like you just know that this woman has a history and she will snap at any moment. Um, you know, even like casting somebody like smaller or just like just something which is just like it's purely down to. Older. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you ever seen, by the way, have you ever seen a movie called Taking Off? No. Okay. Don't think so. It's, it's, uh, the director Milos Forman, the Czech director, oh, yeah. Forman, who went, went on to do, you know, incredible Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus yeah. and Man in the Moon and all these fantastic films. Anyway, he his first film is I highly recommend it. It's a it's kind of a comedy. It's very funny and um, it's very underseen. It's Buck Henry is in it. Um, and oh no shit, yeah, and just, yeah, Kathy Bates is in it too. Yeah. <laughs> And and yeah, and she's in it. She's the first thing that she she was ever in, and 
she's what her name in it is Bobo Bates. That was like her original like stage <laughs> name. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like at the beginning of the film. The beginning of the film takes place in like a. It's kind of like a talent show in New York, and they're just people trying out for some part, I guess. And it's just all these girls just lining up one by one and and doing their song or dance or whatever it is. And she sits down, she sings a song, and she it's amazing, it's beautiful, and she's like so. And you can it's one of those moments where you can see that's all she has in the film. She just has that appearance, but it's just one of those moments where you see an actor who obviously has this like tiny role. She's very young and you're like, Oh, this person has something. I'll have to check that out. I I'm shocked to hear that. I thought this was Kathy Bates's feature debut. Like, so I'm, I'm stunned to hear that uh, she was in something that was like nine. I just look, it's like 1971. So we're not talking about, Oh, this was like beat, beat that by four years or whatever. This was like 15, 16. What? What? That's 19, crazy. 19 yeah, years a, beforehand. She's a kid. I know she, she's a yeah, kid. I, mean, I know she, she, she was big. She was a stage actress. And I think that's one of the genius things that um, Reiner did here was they allowed Annie like ever. We know Kathy Bates now and the 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 role's iconic and she's like set the template for it. Right. Yeah. Uh, in much the same way that Sissy Spacek set the template for Carrie, you know, yes. and before Carrie, she'd done a couple of Altman things where she was like very, you know, small, no. small character. Favorite. But like Carrie was like where most people first saw mm. Sissy Spacek. So she got to be the character. And in much the same way, um, you know, I don't know if a movie star quite is as quite as, as effective. I, I say that knowing full well that one of the most iconic cinematic Stephen King characters of all time is Jack Torrance from yeah. the Kubrick, the shining, which yeah. there it was no bigger star in the world than Jack Nicholson at that point. Uh, but yeah, it's also the, probably the primary reason why uh, a lot of people who love the, the, the book uh, just it. couldn't bounce off the movie because they didn't, you know, it was Jack Nicholson to them. It wasn't, it wasn't the character. So, you know, yeah, I think, um, uh, I remember that being the case, and I, I, I feel like, um, you know, when I was casting my film, I was, you know, <laughs> when you're making like a film for the first time, uh, uh, your debut film, and you kind of, I was going in very much like with this idea of going to make this small contained film, and it's not going to cost much money, and and I was, I was very much within the ideas like I don't need names because like great horror does not need names because they're a distraction, you know? And yeah, I think I can see like uh, with Jack Nicholson, like, I mean, obviously you've got this huge voice of like, it's just, just these massive presences all around because you've got Stephen King and then you've got Kubrick coming in, who's just like this huge presence. And then you've got Jack Nicholson who just takes on this role and just devours it, you know? Um, so I can understand that being problematic, you know. Um, of course, you know, it helps to get films made and all that kind of stuff. But I do, right. think, I do think that, like, with putting Kathy Bates in that role and her not being known is certainly, like, especially coming off, like, James Kahn, who was known, you know. Right. Um, although I feel, I'm not sure, but I feel like, I, I remember he went through kind of like a, a bit of a, because he was, kind of pretty by all reports like tempestuous 
and rough you know, to work with. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, and just kind of like, you know, he had various like booze and drug problems yeah. and stuff like that. And I think, um, I'm not sure where he was at within that, the mo- that time. Um, but, uh, the character that he's staying with, who is the unknown character, he's the famous writer or whatever, but like, yeah, sure. be, you know, um, because I do think it's even, yeah, even seeing the film, it's a slight distraction that even like Lauren Bacall is his agent, you know? Right, right. right. And then of course you've got Richard Farnsworth as the detective who- Yeah, um, Buster, yeah. Yeah, who, you know, people didn't really know much about, you know, um, had that beautiful, like, final career moment with in david lynch's the straight story um, yeah uh but you know um essentially it's just i think bringing her in as this this unknown is is perfect yeah it's like because you don't really it it is something to get over for the audience to get over and especially in a situation like that you just want to just going in with this blank canvas there and just being like who the fuck is this? Is yeah, really- she's an unknown quantity. You don't really know what right. you're going to get get from this woman, and and it's a little off putting. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a reason why she won the Oscar for this too. Yeah. She's also just happens to be a fucking outstanding actress and yeah. just perfect for this role. But I mean, that's also something I think is really interesting about this is that uh, there have been Stephen King uh, movies nominated for Oscars before. Uh, mm. there have been Stephen King actors nominated in Stephen King movies, uh, 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 Sissy Spacek and, and I think Piper Laurie as well nominated, sure. but the <clears throat> only one that to ever win, there's never been an, an Oscar win for a Stephen King movie outside of Kathy Bates for misery. Oh, really? Still. Wow. Still okay. like, yeah, like amazing. not even like it blew my mind. Cause not even like makeup or something like imagine <laughs> like, you know, it, I, I mean, thinner yeah. win in the Oscar for makeup, but you know, it, you know, maybe, <laughs> Maybe it or, you know, Green Mile for production yeah, yeah. design or cinematography or, yeah, or any Shawshank other performance. Literally anything, you know. Yeah. Uh, Did you get know. anything? I thought that got something. Shawshank? Yeah. Shawshank got, got nominated to Helen back, but it fucking didn't it win lo- anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it was in the, was same the same year as like Gump yeah. and Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, right? yeah. You know, that, God damn. Talk about a fucking rough year for the Oscars. Like, <laughs> I mean, good I mean, Lord. I mean, the Oscars when like, the the year that uh, that that broke the Oscars for me was when um, I think it was like Goodfellas was nominated for like every award and lost everything to Dances with Wolves and I was just, <laughs> yeah I was yeah. like what and you know you look back on it now and you're like you know what what's the film people remember there you know yeah like, exactly that's the yeah. that's the oh, thing man. a lot of people I I you know every year. In the lead up to the Oscars, you hear people saying, like, I don't give a shit about the Oscars. It's this dog and pony show. It doesn't mean anything. All that matters is like the, you know, whether or not these these movies stand the test of time. And then they all forget that on Oscar night when the person they were rooting for doesn't win. And it's it's like, you know, this is a travesty. And like, you know, you get two, three days of that shit on social media and But like, but that's the truth, you know, um, that the, the, the year we're talking about for Shawshank, you know, that's that was Forrest Gump's big year. Yeah. You know, Forrest Gump is kind of a punchline at this point. And yeah, what I are know. the movies that, that persevere fucking, you know, it's Shawshank, it's Pulp Fiction, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. maybe yeah. not Quiz Show, which I think was the other one that was in the. That <laughs> Does was in Shawshank the mix have that its year. own line of chain restaurants uh, still to this day on. <clears throat> On the outskirts of all theme parks? I don't think so. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. If you ever catch me eating at a Bubba Gump shrimp company, <laughs> just put a bullet in my fucking head. Like, I'll, I'll if if there's a Margaritaville nearby, I would go to that before I'd go to Bubba Gump. But <laughs> yeah, I'm you know talking about this. I'm kind of I, I don't want to tempt the movie gods, but uh, it's sort of surprising that someone hasn't mounted a new remake of of misery because i can see what the pitch would be the Mm. pitch would be we're going to do it more accurate to the book this one's going to be bloodier it's going to be you know we're going to honor the source material but really it's just an excuse to you know add a bunch of gore to it and i i think sooner or later someone's probably going to do that like someone's got to be holding the rights to this i mean you know obviously what you just mentioned at the beginning of the show with where we're at today with social media and mm-hmm. just fandom and you know going out of control i think that like it's pretty ripe it's pretty ripe for for today's world i think it's just like there is just so much so much uh control and obsessive control over people's work and and interpretations of people's work that is just yeah i think it's um there's a lot which you could put in there, which would definitely strike a, a, a strong chord with with what's going on out there today, for sure. What do you What do you make of that phenomenon? I mean, I imagine this has always existed, but it's it's um, it's become more obvious with the, the you know the advent of the internet and technology yeah. and you know the social media platforms and all of this. Like, what do you do? You, is there a solution to that or is that just we're <laughs> fucked and now that genie is out of the bottle? What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I think it's like, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say we're fucked. I think that like, I'd like to hope that, you know, at a certain point, um, I would like look to the younger generations to, to sort of start questioning it themselves and being like, is this the world we want to live in? Do we want to spend our lives judging each other on this level? Because it just seems not really the right thing to do. I don't know. Just, it just seems like so much, you know, so much good has come out of the internet, but so much negative as well. And it just feels like it's kind of tipping the balance over the other way right now. And, um, but I'd like to be optimistic (laughs) Uh and, uh, hope that that's just like, you know, this is just an adjustment and we're just figuring it out. There was an interesting documentary. I, I thought it was going to be really nerdy, but actually was like super interesting. It was called The People versus George Lucas. Did you ever see that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 I saw that. Yeah, Yeah. and it was just, it was, you know, I was obviously big into Star Wars when I was growing up. It hit me at, you know, it came out when when I was young and like very young and, but like it was like prime age, you know. Um, And I felt the kind of sort of revulsion when these like new films were being made and, and yeah, sure. uh, just so many of the arguments within it was so interesting and about it was essentially the idea for those who haven't seen it was essentially you know at what point does the art stop belonging to the artists you know and, and belong to the people you know um, I mean that's slightly different to what we're talking about which is like obsessive fandom but it's just it kind of goes in the same in the same world of just like you know, when you put stuff out there, people take ownership and that's fine. That's bound to happen. But it's just when it kind of spills off into this kind of 
demeaning personal attacks on the person who created right. it just, or just because you don't get it or because it doesn't quite fit in with your beliefs. I think the main problem with a lot of stuff today is just like, and I think most people agree, most sensible people agree with this is just like, there's just this general lack of nuance. Like people just, just, it's just right. black and white and that, that is it. Right. And you can't really throw anything in between. You can't like actually have a measured conversation about it. And it just, it, which is the sad thing. And I just hope people get a bit more. Yeah. Just, you know, I don't know. It's Let, yet another start. reason to, what you're talking about is yet another reason not to, or to pull away from social media. I think, you know, yeah. like we, we kind of need social media like Vespi and I, in order to promote this show. And, you know, uh, we do a lot of booking for the show via yeah. social media. You know, it's uh, an invaluable tool in that sense. But what I found, especially over the last year or so, is that it's it's just not a fun place to hang out anymore. It used to be yeah. like a thing that you could leave a tab open to on your laptop and kind of check in with every, yeah. you know, twice an hour. And there was usually something fun going on or something funny or like whatever. And now it's. Uh, that the lack of nuance that you're talking about has eradicated the ability to have like an adult conversation about anything. So it's, yeah. so I find myself more and more just kind of just keeping my thoughts to myself. Like there's no fucking, there's no benefit from broadcasting every last thought you had. Yeah. In fact, that's how people yeah. get in trouble. And, yeah. you know, people will, people will have the, 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 the most bad faith read on things that, mm -hmm. that clearly don't call for it. And then on top of that, <clears throat> there's this, which is, in a thing that's also related to misery is the, the, the idea of these parasocial relationships that, that, right. that pop up between, you know, creators and their audience. Mm. And I think, you know, uh, you know, I won't speak for Vespi here, but I I've seen it happen even with like this show. And we forget, I think, sometimes that we say a lot of shit on this show that it's very personal to our lives. And it's just mm -hmm. like in, we're we're all having a conversation here. And I don't I don't feel like it's like I have no awareness of being on the air when I'm having these conversations. Right. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm just talking to somebody, yeah, you know, sure. and so I, I might say something to make a point, but it might be a highly personal thing. And then. I forget that people hear that and internalize it. And then they feel as though like, oh, well, I know this person. It's like, no, you're, you kind of don't, you know what I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. And that part fucking creeps me out. Like yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not thrilled with that, but I don't know what there's, what's to be done about that. Unless you just completely eliminate any sort of personal opinions or, you know, relating a, a conversation to your life in any way, there's not really a way around that. It just happens mm. naturally, but yeah. it's a strange phenomenon. Not a well, big fan of it. It, may, it makes for a very, um, unfortunately what it, what it does is it just makes for a, a kind of slightly duller world because we're just really like, everybody's like, you know, watching what they, they say and, um, right, right. You know, and just just for fear, I feel like comedy is in a really terrible place right now because just like you know, comedians are really like penned in for what they can say, and like you know, understand understandably, like there has been some judgment there, which which probably needs to go down. But at the same time, it's just like 
the result of it is just like the the well that they can like source to create their their humor and and is just kind of got so much smaller you know it's just dried right up you know and um and it's just like having to constantly check yourself can be a good thing but it also unfortunately it just it eliminates a lot of spontaneity and um uh and you know you would hope that people have the kind of general moral fiber in them to just be able to say the right thing and also to judge when something's a joke or when when something's just like you know i don't know i don't know it's it, it's complicated but i so i do think just like bringing it back around to misery i do think that like all this is just like pretty it's pretty fertile territory to to go in the uh the misery reboot <laughs> the only the only reason i can imagine that it hasn't been remade by now is that Reiner's Misery is more or less a perfect adaptation of, mm. of the novel. You know, mm. you could you could make it more faithful to the source material if you wanted to, but I I don't I don't know that that improves the movie and the performances in the first one loom so fucking large over mm. yeah. over the over this property for lack of a better term that yeah, sure. I think that anyone spearheading it would have an uphill battle casting it I, I think a lot of people would be like i'm not fucking it'd be like doing a new version of the shining you you yeah. would need someone who is <laughs> really egotistical someone who's like you know yeah i can improve on that you know or just doesn't give a fuck about the idea of um filling in the the shoes of a, a formerly iconic hmm. performance that <laughs> to get away with it you would also need a filmmaker who's who's crazy enough to do it like I, uh, I've said a million times on the show, like they're gonna remake. The ready shine. for it, man! I'll take it on. <laughs> if you, <laughs> well, if you um had to remake a King movie, like <laughs> you know, gun to your head, they're like your next project is a Stephen King adaptation. You I'm can pick which one it is, but it's got to be that. Misery with 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 uh, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> You'd sell but, tickets but as their Barbie characters, as Barbie yeah. and Ken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the Barbie sequel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what? Let me ask you this: Do you think Misery, as a story, um, would benefit from a role a gender flip thing, or would having a man in the position of Annie Wilkes, oh, you know, over? over somebody uh, over a uh, a woman in the bed would that take it into oh, a, a far idea. ickier uh it territory quite... than than it would <laughs> huh yeah and that's going to be like the situation of just like it would it would be interesting if you managed to get it right and you managed to like i mean it definitely opens it up into this um i mean i think though obviously like one of the things which makes it so powerful though it is this idea of this weakened man yes. and this woman yeah. dominating him um so it's certainly which especially when it came out was a little bit more fresh because you're just so used to seeing movies the other way around um, right right so, so i think you'd have to be pretty smart the way you, you took it on um it's not like your traditional gender flip which is you know um, because already it's kind of like the the genders are reversed um so right 
Um, You'd be swapping it back into the more common, yeah, <laughs> the common yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, that's just a serial killer story. You know, like, <laughs> like that's like we've seen that a million times. It's uh, that's, that's what makes it interesting. Like, it yeah, would, that would be a catastrophic decision. But I, I would like to talk about the um, what, what I what I knew from actually I, I found it out initially from reading. Stephen King's on writing, which mm-hmm. which was the last Stephen King book I wrote, I read actually, and uh, really enjoyed it. And um, and you know he talks about it in there, and I think obviously became very well known that yeah that the novel was essentially you know his battle with addiction, which is obviously very much like underplayed within the film. And right. uh, be curious to see that version of it as well i mean it's just such a an interesting way of him i guess unburdening himself of his addictions was to to write this this novel and uh create this character who you know it's very easy to just see how as what she is the 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 you know disgruntled super fan the world's greatest fan but at the same time like for her to be the kind of physical form of Stephen King's addiction is really, uh, yeah, that's a really intense and interesting place to pull from. Right. I just have this, like, you know, I mean, that that <laughs> image of, of my head of, like, that he talks about in his book of just, like, him, you know, writing with, like, toilet paper stuffed in his bleeding nostrils you know yeah. <laughs> like it's impossible to get that out of my head whenever i once i heard that i was just like oh my god just this image of him and he just seems so um he that's why he's such an interesting guy he just seems like so not that but at the same time like obviously he really went through it you know he really went yeah. he was really exercising some heavy demons there and right. um you can still feel it in the film somewhat but like i'm curious like how much from the book like how much you get that from the book i know that he's like it's way more about his you know he he, he gets more hooked on the painkillers she gives him and you know that's much yeah. more of a topic within there and he's much more an addict within it but uh um yeah i'm just curious there's, about that there's that i mean a little bit like what you said with the painkillers but for the most part like i i've i don't remember the book being or that theme being all that clear in the novel. Um, Mm. That's always been something that's been difficult for me to, because the entitled fandom and knowing Stephen King's history with some crazy fans Mm. and, and all that, like that, that seems what's on the surface seems like more accurate to, to me in terms of, uh, his creative process. But, you know, obviously I'm going to listen to him. What he says is what he, he did. Uh, but the, one of the things that I think is really interesting, though, is that when you start looking at it as a uh, an addiction, ver- where I, I start seeing not only his addiction to to the drugs at the time, but his addiction to writing. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's one of the most interesting things about the story isn't the fact that there's this demented lady that says, "Write me, write me the 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 sequel that I want right now." Essentially, mm-hmm. write me this book that I want that'll yeah. fix all the things you fucked up. Which <laughs> I can imagine there being a misery with some you know demented fan, you know, uh, capturing you know 
you know, JJ Abrams or Kathy Kennedy or Ryan Johnson and saying, no, no, you're going to fix what you did to this, this, the star Wars yes, trilogy. Exactly. You know, I can see that. But like, what I love about it is that at a certain point, he starts falling in love with the, the, the work that he is writing that she is forcing him to do. And he's not half-assing it. He's, he actually, the creative process Mm. is sparked within him and he gets excited and he, he finds himself falling into the rhythms of like, Oh my God, this actually might be, you know, this might work. This, the story might work and he gets excited about it. Like, and to me that shows an addiction to that creative process too. And knowing Stephen King's, um, his process where he, you know, he, he's much like Paul Sheldon. He's a man of habit. He is somebody who will write, you know, he gets up at the same time every day and has for the last fucking 50 years, you know, and he writes for, you know, he gets his coffee. Then he writes for four hours. He goes on a walk. He comes back. He does like three hours of business and he does it every, every single fucking day. And that, that is kind of an addiction itself. It's a habit that he's getting in. Yeah. Um, so that that to me is interesting, but it's it's hard to me to to look at Annie Wilkes as just his drug addiction. Like it it really is hard for me when he says, "Oh yeah," and like the number one fan thing. I just said it because you know drugs were you know my number one fan, and you know at mm-hmm. the time it's like like I I find it so hard to separate that from the actual crazy fans that he's surely interacted with. Yeah, you know? I agree. I yeah. agree. So the uh, um when you said that he's like, he begins enjoying it. This is in the, in the book, right? Yes. He begins. Well, I mean, it's in the book and you get, you get the little bit of that feeling in the movie too, where the, you see the words are just coming to him and he's sitting there. It's not like he's sitting there going, Oh God. Like at a certain point, even the way James Conn plays, uh, Paul Sheldon, like he's like, he's in the zone. You can see him in the zone and pages are coming, right. coming out. I mean, Uh, you know, I think as, as a writer, myself like you know sometimes we need somebody to like force us to sit down and do something you know um uh we all need a deadline basically and um it's really like you know maybe we don't need a a maniac with a a, you know strapping us to a bed or whatever but um at the same time like you know it's very easy to 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 slip you know when you're faced with like an empty page to just like not want to just look at it and not want to commit uh just right especially these days when you know with again like social media and just just general distraction left right and center it's just like to actually sit down and do it it's just like it's hard man it's hard and i think like uh the hardest thing is the is the beginning is that being forced to forcing yourself, you know, being your own Annie Wilkes, like forcing yeah. yourself to actually sit down and do it. You know, once you get in the rhythm, it's just like suddenly I, I recently I'm working on my my next film and I, I went down to the desert actually to do some writing down there. I have an office here in Los Angeles and I, I do a pretty good job there, but at the same time still got distractions and so I really wanted to get something done at the end of last year. And I went down to the desert and I spent like four days down there. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was great. And the amount of work I got done there just because I was kind of just forcing yourself into a situation of confinement. And just like, okay, I've got to, I got to do this now. I've got no right. excuse. <laughs> just take away every distraction possible. So she is kind of like the, uh, we all need a little bit of an Annie Wilkes in our life to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> get our get our stuff done you know 
Yeah, you sold me. We're going into business into the Annie Wilkes uh, writing retreats all across the country. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, Barnaby, thank you for being here today. This was fantastic. Um, Let's tell the people where they can find you online in case they want to misery you at some point and (laughs) and uh, where they can uh, catch the catch this movie on the on the 26th. Yeah, so it's um, it's movies coming out uh, 26th in the States. And I think it's, you know, it's going to be elsewhere in the world later. Um, mm-hmm. It's a day and date release, which is basically in the theaters, Los Angeles, New York. Um, there will be some other states to be announced. Um, hoping it's going to come to you guys down in Austin. And, yeah. uh, um, and then, yeah, just on demand, basically. Um, Magnolia are putting it out. So keep an eye out for it. Um, but if you do get a chance to see it in the theater, if it is coming near you, please do, because it's really a, I, I think it's a great cinematic experience. It's like, it's definitely like, I mean, it's good watching it, you know, at home or whatever, but like, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of effort and love placed on the, and not just effort and love, but also like there's a lot of feeling in the sound, you know, just the sound and the music. It's it's really like an all-round experience, and I think the best place to see it is in the theater. Um, I bet this is a hell of a lot of fun with a crowd. Oh, yeah. Um, totally. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, if, <laughs> if you can if you can catch this in a theater, I would, I would strongly recommend that you do so. It's, and, it's uh, awesome. Yeah, you can... You can uh, uh, Stalk, stalk me and at Annie Wilkes me at um, uh, Out of the Ether um, on Instagram, and I'll be there. But I'm not going to rewrite the ending or change it. <laughs> well, thanks <laughs> again uh, for being here. This was awesome. Uh, congratulations on the movie, and uh, we Thank hope you. it does well for you. And uh, you know, hope to talk to you again somewhere up the road. Cool. All right. Thank you guys so much. It's been it's been really fun. Many thanks to Barnaby Clay. Yes. Uh, it's uh as we talked about on the the episode like misery is one of those titles that uh uh that I don't think we're going to get very tired of talking about so no, very I'm, chewy that yeah, title. Yeah, yeah. love lo- love to dive into misery uh especially if you guys end up seeing uh the seating you will see all the connections and, and know exactly why he was the right guest to bring in to talk about that story. Yes, um, absolutely. And speaking of the right guests, uh, we got to tease what's coming up next week. And we have a, a wild main feed episode for you next week. Uh, mm. I, I think, uh, Mr. Waffler, do you want to do the honors on this one? <laughs> okay. So the guest is uh, a gentleman by the name of Sam Haft, who is uh, a member of a band called The Living Tombstone. Sam and his uh, co-writers are the people responsible for the music in a new animated series coming to Amazon Prime called Has Been Hotel. In fact, I think it already started, yeah. right? Yep, it's up. Yes. Um, yeah, we're kind of coming into this like a few weeks into that show's run. Uh, but but Sam is a musical genius. He's also uh, extremely funny, very talented guy. And as an added bonus, he has, well, he picked Cujo. And he has written a song of rock opera anthem uh, called Bat Blood based on Cujo that you will hear on next week's episode. In full, um, by the way, I want to point out this is like this isn't like, oh, this is a fun little jingle. Like this is a fully orchestrated, fully executed. Yes. 
musical as if Cujo was a rock opera musical. Yeah, it's sung from the point of view of Cujo, by the (laughs) way. (laughs) so good. You guys have no idea. This is... This is it's wild. Uh, so we have our like kind of usual King Cast style Cujo conversation, but there's like this bomb of musical theater that's dropped in the middle yeah, of this episode yeah. that makes it unlike anything we've ever done, which uh, which is very nice in year four of the King Cast. We do like to to uh, expand a little bit into new territory, and uh, and I, next week's episode's a blast. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Yes, and also I have talked to Sam, and he is going to make the song. Bat Blood available uh, via Spotify on the same day that this episode drops. So you're going to hear it on the show. You're going to be really excited. You're going to say, how can I get this into my phone? Guess what? It's on Spotify. Thanks to uh, our friend Sam Haft. Can't say enough good things about this episode. It's a lot <laughs> of fucking fun. And uh, we're doing that next Wednesday. So yep. buckle up. And uh, this Friday on our Patreon, we are doing a new commentary. It is going to be for what we like to call Corn Boys. We're rejoining the Corn Boys series, and we are seeing Corn Boys. Well, I I will save the real title. Children of the Corn 7 Revelations, I think. Neither Wampler or I have watched this, and we are going. This is our first commentary where we're going in completely cold into the movie, and we're watching it for the first time. I'm not watching this shit twice. 2001's Children of the Corn 7, uh, starring Michael Ironside, of all people. Uh, you know, because when you think of children and corn, you think Michael Ironside. Uh, that's the first thing that jumps into my mind. Uh, and yes. joining us for this raucous commentary will be author Clay McLeod Chapman. Uh, you know him from Ghost Eaters and Whisper Down the Lane, the remaking. What uh, kind of mother? Yep, yeah, great author. Uh, I don't know why he's joining us on this journey, but but damn it, we're going to take it. And uh, I, I can't imagine this is going to be anything besides a uh, a wild commentary. It's going to be a fun one. Head on over to patreon.com slash the KingCast and sign up. Uh, all of our episodes there are ad free. And uh, we got a brand new bonus episode every week. So if you're only listening to the main feed, you're only getting half the show. Uh, and, uh, yeah, head on over there. It's going to be a, a, a wild one. We are recording that one tomorrow and I'm, uh, I have no idea how it's going to go going in fresh, but this is, this is going to be a fun experiment. I yeah. Think. We'll find out. Adios folks. All right. Bye. The King cast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi. That's me. And Scott Wampler, Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.